Welcome to Chinese Revolutions. This is a podcast about how China came to be the way it is today. We're looking at modern Chinese history, following revolutionary movements starting about around the start of the First Opium War, 1839, and what happened next. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Uh, I am, as I'm starting this up, I will be talking more about how you can help support this podcast. The main podcast will always be free. I need to get to about 100 paid subscribers to start producing supplementary episodes, like biographies of key people, uh, interesting technology being used at the time, zooming in on special interest you know, topics or events. Uh, you can also join my Substack. For greater connection with the podcast, you'll get behind-the-scenes stories from the production of the podcast, also stories from my time in China, other interesting things, uh, show notes, uh, like the outlines that I use to record the, you know, as I record the podcast. So pay attention for that at the end of the episode. Um, so here, uh, this episode... We're going to talk about the definition of revolution. Uh, it's too easy to look at what the Communist Party did as they took over China and think, yeah, okay, that's that's the revolution. Everything after that, that's the revolution. No, we're going back over a hundred years before 1949, the founding of the People's Republic, uh, because there's a whole lot that came before. There, the Communist Party inherited a lot of Chinese nationalistic stuff. And before we l even look at what those were, we're going to look at what revolutions are in general. And before I get away into my own program too much, uh, I owe a huge debt to the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan, which is a weekly podcast exploring great political revolutions. Uh, so you can find that on Google. Uh, look for Revolutions Podcast by Mike Duncan. Mike as in short for Michael. Duncan as in Macbeth has murdered King Duncan. Uh, he receives various suggestions to do Chinese revolutions. And I, I even emailed him one myself. Um, understandably, uh, you know, he didn't get back to me. But his podcast is wonderful. You'll learn a whole ton. You know, so with all these suggestions about doing Chinese stuff, I thought, wait a minute, I could do that. So uh, I'm just going to say Google is your friend here. I'm, I'll link it in the show notes, but um, you, you can search for it in your favorite podcast app as well. And uh, tell him I sent you. All right. So revolution. What is Revolution. It is most basically when the rules change, the foundational facts change, or are seen to change. So it's like, we're not playing checkers anymore, we're playing chess. Whatever changes have to happen to fit the pieces into the new order, so be it. You know, sometimes revolutions can be extremely brutal and just force everything to be different now. Thank you very much. Or, we're not playing Go Fish anymore, we're playing Canasta, one card game to another card game. So life is made of the same universal stuff, but the rules change. It's just different. 
Also note, revolution is very often an opportunistic infection. So it takes advantage of weakness that is not normally present. So a medical example, when you die from AIDS, uh, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, uh, you're not really dying from AIDS. You're dying because your immune system is gone, and all the weird diseases and cancers that come up because your immune system is compromised, uh, they kill you. Rules are so fundamentally changed in a revolution because the old order loses its ability to self-correct. You know, the outside you know, also one possible dynamic is that an outside imperial order invades and imposes a new order. Uh, so y you can see that in some different revolutions. It happens a, a bit in China as well. Okay, so these more academic definitions of Wikipedia that I'm a... Definitions of Wikipedia. These definitions of revolution that I'm about to uh, use here, I got them from Wikipedia. So we're not academically plumbing the depths of what a revolution is, but I just want to tell you, I didn't come up with these words. I didn't do the studies to come up with exactly these. I'm trying to give you a, de a definition other than just my own so that there's a little bit more dialogue here, uh, not just me pulling this out of my own head or anywhere else. So, uh, Wikipedia talk had this guy named Jeff Goodwin. Like, it's good to win, Goodwin. Uh, any and all instances in which a state or a political regime is overthrown and thereby transformed by a popular movement in an irregular, extra-constitutional, and or violent fashion. Uh, so, somebody did this, there was a plan, there might be a popular movement, but some smaller group of people organized the shape it would take. Even a tyrannical regime rides some popular impulse. There's something they're addressing, there's some problem that they, uh, excuse me, there's some problem that they covered that the other side didn't touch. Even if the whole country hates the way things are going, most people just don't have the capacity to plan, act, persuade, and most importantly, keep the team together to push a different vision. So get social revolution. Uh, so the, the first definition was political revolution, then this is social revolution. Again, Jeff Goodwin, revolutions entail not only mass mobilization and regime change, but also more or less rapid and fundamental social, economic, and or cultural change during or soon after the struggle for state power. So who's in charge changes, why they're in charge changes. So let's look at this example from European history. Okay, in the, the, the evolution of serfdom and the emergence of capitalism. So in the beginning of serfdom, local lords provided military and police protection in exchange for, lo for closer ties with surrounding peasants. So they're bound to the land. The, the lords could claim service from their serfs uh, in exchange for protection. With the ending of serfdom and the establishment or the re-establishment of a centralized state, 
uh, feudal dues uh, in fits and spurts died out as a form of property. Like you actually see this at the, in the French Revolution, moneyed classes, uh, you know, businessmen who had bought their way into the nobility, like they wanted to recoup their investment, you know, and that was feudal dues. That's how they would get it. Um, you know, but then under Napoleon, actually, peasants became a landowning class. So, so in the political revolution, the nobility was ended, and you know, peasants went back to owning their own land. There was a central state again, uh, and so there were a lot of there were a lot of social changes as well. So then, also then, when you have voting in the beginning, it's propertied male suffrage. And then it's expanded to all men, and then you bring in the inclusion of female suffrage uh, so that everybody gets to vote. Uh, so with that, there's a lot of social change, you know, okay, husbands, wives, what are they in relation to each other? You know, And then as the economy changes, feudal lords often became capitalistic investors, lower classes became wage laborers, so before or under serfdom, they would have a claim on their lord for aid. Uh, but also, they had a job. They had a place. But then, under wage labor, then, you know, it's like you are theoretically free, and you can theoretically go to whatever boss you want. But if you're out on the street, you don't have a claim on anybody for help. Uh, no more security and so how all that gets sorted out is tricky. Okay, then the next place where I'm pulling some of my insights here is a book called The Dictator's Handbook, Why Bad Behavior is Almost Always Good Politics by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alastair Smith. And I'm using a link uh, that I will provide in the show notes for a summary. I've actually read the book, uh, but I'm going off this summary so I didn't have to write my own outline. In China scholarship, there's this idea of the mandate of heaven. Let's call it political legitimacy or political viability. So Chinese dynastic succession is basically a form of regularized revolution. So the old dynasty somehow wasn't taking care of justice and all that. And so over the course of some years or even decades, a new you know, dynasty took what is often called the mandate of heaven. They took on many of the forms from the old dynasty, but a whole lot changes from dynasty to dynasty. So just, just so you don't get the idea that, um, that China is not some sort of, you know, dreamland of, you know, sleepy dynasty succeeding sleepy dynasty until, like it hits the modern world, there, there there were radical changes from dynasty to dynasty. So, you, you know, but there was an established form in the imperial system. Um, so let's so let's let's just be be clear here. People believe in things. So whenever there's a rev, you know, even the most hypocritical narcissist who decides he wants to be emperor, he believes in things. Uh, but they just keep jamming themselves into the center position. You know, I have to be in charge because I am the solution to the problem. And so as as you'll see, as we uh, look at some of what comes from the dictator's handbook, uh, 
you know, so then, uh, then they screw everything up, and because their focus turns entirely to preservation of power, there's less and less that they can do for the benefit of the people, and when, you know, so then it's like, if you have to spend a dollar before you can spend 10 cents on the people, you know, look, all those dollars are going out the window, I'm going to have to save the, uh, the, the cents as well. You know, so, like, there's a certain amount, you know, but then when they lose the ability to stay in power, that's when change happens. So, from De Mesquita and Smith, uh, writers of the Dictator's Handbook, they list the following rules of political power. So I'm going to say a rule, and then I'm going to say my explanatory thing. So politics is about getting and keeping political power, not about the welfare of the people. I'm copying this from this website summary. So my explanation, welfare of the people is one of those if there's room in the budget for it things. So if a regime can't keep power anymore, they're going to be very short-lived. Okay, again, a rule here. Political power is best ensured and maintained when you depend on few essential cronies to attain and retain office. Dictators are often in a better position to retain power than Democrats. So, for example, why Che Guevara was booted from Cuba, you know, sent to Africa, sent to America, uh, South America, go make revolution somewhere else. Uh, Fidel Castro was narrowing the number of people who he needed to rely on to retain power. Another rule, uh, depending on a small coalition of cronies allows leaders to tax at higher rates. Uh, see, coalition governments are annoying. Um, pork barrel spending to get legislators to vote on your thing just gets to be way, way too expensive. So uh, if you have a very small number of supporters, you can you know, spend on a small number of people to keep them happy. Uh, another rule, uh, dictators have the most power when the essential cronies are easily replaceable. So you want a lot of people who are wanting to be in your inner circle, and you can frequently have some turnover so that everybody's looking to please you and to demonstrate their loyalty to you. So Hitler uh, in Nazi Germany, he had redundant agencies to keep his subordinates focused on their rivalry with each other and competing you know, in their loyalty to him. You know, so like, like do you really need SS... Abwehr, military intelligence, and the Gestapo, and was there naval intelligence as well? Do you really need all of that? Could you just do one? Anyway, dictator's rules. Okay, so you keep the winning coalition as small as possible. You will need fewer people to stay in power, stay in power. You have higher control over them, and you will save on graft, like so fewer bribes. You know, but also the problem with a smaller number is that it's also easier for them to organize a putsch, you know, a, a coup, a palace coup. You keep the nominal selectors as large as possible, so everybody who's fighting to be on your side, you know, so that you can easily replace troublemakers among the influentials and the essentials. 
Um, and it sends the essentials a message that they'd better behave. Um, so again, I'm just letting you know I'm ripping this off from another website, uh, the link which will be shared in the show notes. Um, political parties are great for this. You know, it's used so like they're, they're pre-screened for faith and loyalty, um, basically a ready-made pool of possible replacements. Um, political parties are basically adoptive, or they go by adoptive suggestion, uh, succession. So you, like, how, you know, how do you get to be the Pope? Well, you become a really, really good Catholic. How do you get to be the next Pope after that? You'll be a really good Catholic. It's not based on the Pope's you know, son. Um, also, uh, when Stalin was coming to power in the Soviet Union, he kind of expanded the the party to what he called non-party Bolsheviks. So there were people who were doing great Soviet things, and so he expanded the idea of who was a good communist to not just people who had gone through the revolution, but people who now were being very good, well, what Bolsheviks ought to be. Uh, so in another dictator rule, control the flow of revenues. So in English history, the power of parliament over money, uh, that was a huge change in English politics. When the power gets the the, the control over the purse, uh, that really reigned in the English monarchs. Another rule is pay your essentials just enough to keep them loyal and keep them away from the source of money. In the Chinese classic novel Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the emperor quickly becomes a political football. You know, he has no money. He has to run to others for support. He's on the throne, but he's out of power. Um, another rule is don't take money out of the essentials pockets to make the people better. Dictators spend on essentials, not on average citizens. They spend on keeping themselves in power. Why do you think politicians today keep doing what the rich suggest? That's where they get their campaign donations. Uh, okay, so okay, what website did I get this from? Something about MrSustainability.com. MR-Sustainability.com. Um, so thank you, MrSustainability.com. Uh, okay, let's see, what's... Uh -huh. Ways to remove an incumbent. Wait for him to die, or her. Okay. Strike at the right opportunity. If the leader is old, they probably don't have the wherewithal to you know, manage their security. Or a faux pas, like so they... If, you know, when you slip while you're walking a tightrope, um, it's a lot easier to get pushed. Uh, a financial crisis... Like, yeah, you don't have money, so you, if you want to be the next leader, you promise to support the people who can put you in power, and, you know, you make an offer or convince the current supporters to switch sides, overthrow the government through internal revolution or war with a foreign power. Um, and actually, you know, King John in English history, he got himself put back on the throne when the English barons were looking to overthrow him. And the Pope and all the powers of Europe were coming to invade. So he made a deal with all the foreign powers to have them support him against the English barons. Uh, so that's that's another way to get your power. 
And so Chinese, okay, so here, here we go with the thing about Chinese revolutions. Chinese revolutions kept happening because the ways to remove an incumbent just kept opening up until the Communist Party nailed things down. That's, that's it. That's the main point we're getting to. Chinese revolutions kept happening because nobody could nail down state power. So there's all these ways to have a revolution or a coup or, you know, just anything. And so until a number, until a lot of foreign influence in China could be stopped, until uh, the Chinese state could be reconstituted under some form, revolutions were just going to keep happening. So just one more quota reference. Will Durant in The Story of Civilization, Our Oriental Heritage, uh, he's talking about the founding of a Japanese dynasty. The founder of a dynasty uses up half the genius of a dynasty in founding it. So one of the strengths of the Communist Party is it's by adoption. So you know, you, you have a, you know, you, oh gosh, like you have people working very, very hard for the party, and they will spend decades serving in various provinces of China, and after they've proven their usefulness and their loyalty to the party, they get a chance at higher and higher positions. So this isn't just son of, this is somebody who believes in same thing as previous leader. Uh, so that's one way they're going to keep vitality over a long period of time. Uh, dynasties would basically w just run out of steam because uh, it, you know, hopefully the able son takes over for, from the father, but uh, so we'll we'll see that in the communist party when we get up there. So now we are rounding things out. So. Um, so revolutions happened because problems came up that the Chinese national authorities couldn't or wouldn't solve, and they destabilized their own ability to keep order. Now that, okay, yeah, so the, their inability to solve problems destabilized their own ability to stay in power and to keep order. So, you know, then... So now we're going to close. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, I'm using a platform called Buy Me a Coffee. So buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. C as in Chinese, R as in revolutions. You can support with, you know, with a monthly subscription. You can also just give a one-time donation. Uh, I'm working on different special things to release through that platform for supporters. Um, there's also my Substack, ChineseRevolutions.Substack.com, and subscribing to the Substack will also help keep this going. And through the Substack, you'll get behind-the-scenes looks at how I organize things. You'll get show notes. You'll get... Um, stories from my time in China, from you know, thoughts from different things that I've read about China. 
So thank you for coming along for this episode, and I will see you on the next one.